When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. I feel like I will uh, date myself a little bit by saying this, but I remember sitting in a Perkins family restaurant in the early 2000s, and for some reason uh, I assumed that there just can't be something like Perkins restaurants anymore. I grew up with them going uh, with my family to them every Sunday uh, after church, and by the time I got my license and we had moved, um, I was still able to track one down, and it was one of those uh, 24-hour restaurants uh, that I could lose myself in. And um, I'm sure they're still out there somewhere in America, but for some reason, for me, uh, that just seems impossible. It seems that that restaurant uh, is stuck in the uh, late 80s to early 2000s, but anyway... Uh, I remember sitting there one weekend, I'm sure it was a weekend night, probably a Friday or a Saturday night, and I was going through a book of Celtic myths, and this was um, one of those Dover classics, one of those reissues of something from whatever it is, 1890 or 1905, something like that. And I was reading what uh, what was supposed to be... Uh, if not the Celtic creation myth, at least the national founding myth of Ireland. Um, and I had the strange feeling, even then, I hadn't read any of this stuff uh, in translation. I hadn't really uh, looked into it very much at all. But I got the sense then, uh, sitting at a table all by myself on a Saturday night, um, that what I was reading was not the actual story itself. It wasn't the myth itself. And of course it wasn't. It was a retelling. I think the author's name was T.W. Rolenstein or Rolleston. And if I'm not mistaken, I looked him up uh, years later and uh, he may have been a friend of Yeats and Lady Gregory and he may have uh, latched onto or been a precursor to... Uh, Yeats and Lady Gregory's own retellings of uh, Irish myth and uh, local folklore. But I could tell uh, that uh, what I was reading was uh, basically polished prose from about a hundred years ago. It wasn't the real deal. And um, I'm sure I've mentioned this before in the Great Myths series, and I'm sure that I will mention it again. Um, if at all possible, 
what I want to do is go back to uh, translations from the original. The original stories are always, uh, at least for me, they are weirder and they are more meaningful because those are the stories that the uh, people who wanted to preserve them, that is the story that they told. Um, I know that it's easy for, for instance, for kids to get into uh, mythology through the retellings, and of course I didn't have any issue with that. But when you get to the idea of, um, I guess you could just say adults, uh, getting into this material uh, through uh, some guy or some lady, of course, just sitting down and retelling these stories um, as if they were just short stories uh, written in the past 50 years or so, or whatever it is, uh, you lose the entire flavor of, of what you're doing. Um, and in many ways, I think this is one of the reasons why uh, the Arthurian legends have been retold so much. Um, and this is sort of the downside of going straight to the source, because in many, in many respects, uh, the sources of the Arthurian myths are actually sort of boring, so that it makes sense that they were retold over and over again, and you have something like the Mists of Avalon, which I remember being a, a pretty miraculous uh, retelling of uh, so much of Arthurian, of the Arthurian myths and putting it all in one place. That was one time where, I'm sure there are many others, where retelling seemed to do the job. Um, and it actually came about that if you go and look for a Celtic creation myth or the, the founding myth of Ireland, um, my usual rule does not hold. Um, the story that I was reading from T.W. Rolstein uh, back in Perkins Restaurant um, was, I want to make sure I get the name right, the Lavar Gabala Eren, or the Lavar Gawala Eren, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And uh, that's usually uh, given as the Book of Invasions or the Book of Conquests. Now, it was only after looking into what what is involved in reading the Book of Conquest in, the, in a translation that I understood why T.W. Rolestein and so many other people um, had decided to retell it instead. Uh, I came across portions of it uh, in a book called In Search of Ancient Ireland. Um, there's an old, I want to say old, uh, I have it sitting right here of course, under a box of noisy seashells. Uh, there's a book called Ancient Irish Tales, edited by Tom P. Cross and Clark Harris Stover. Pretty sure this is from the, from the 30s. Yeah, from 1936. And they give a good uh, 20 pages over of translation from the original and just compressing it. And, but even that, if I remember correctly from reading it, uh, sort of stilted. 
But it's very possible, though, that what is stilted is actually uh, the original itself. And this is a case where I would rather... Uh, I love the story so much, and I love it when it is compressed into about four pages. And uh, uh, the version of it that I'm going to read tonight comes from uh, James McKillop's Dictionary of Celtic Mythology, uh, from page 292 to 296. <coughs> Excuse me. And this will give uh, a good sense of, of what happened when Ireland became Christianized. Um, I've begun listening to the teaching company lectures uh, that are just called The Celtic World. And there's an entire lecture on the uh, Book of Invasions. And I was surprised to learn that up until the 1960s or so, there were still serious scholars uh, trying to say that there was some kernel of actual history in this account, or that um, if it's not actual history, then there is some kernel of, uh, of pre-Christian Ireland in this account. I guess that latter notion is possible. But uh, when I read this story, it's, um, it's sort of uh, easy to tell it's easy to see what happens when you have a native tradition, a persistent native tradition that uh, that the natives are are proud of and don't want to lose. You see this same thing going on with uh, the Norse myths as well. And you see what happens when uh, a conquering culture, in this case a new religion, comes in and takes over. Uh, they don't want to uh, replace it entirely, um, but they do want to do something with it. They want to, in this case, Christianize it. Uh, there's the old story from Gregory of Tours, uh, where uh, I believe it's somewhere in what is now France, where the uh, the bishops or the priests uh, realize that these people that they're trying to convert or that they have converted. Uh, they won't stop going to a particular pond or small lake and offering uh, offerings there. They won't stop doing it, but they're throwing in uh, cakes or whatever it is to uh, the gods that they believe to inhabit that, uh, that water. So what do they do? They don't, uh, they're not going to dredge the lake. They're not going to kill everybody who ends up, uh, you know, they're not going to spy on them and go and kill the people who uh, go and make offerings at this lake. They build a church at the lake and um, basically, I don't want to say create a saint story, but they create their own story around the lake and uh, they sort of transfer the piety there. And this this is a literary tradition, the one I'm about to read from, a literary story. And you can see that happening just with texts, texts itself. Where the uh where what may have been an early Irish original is woven in and out in a chaotic, almost uh schizophrenic way, uh, with the Bible. And either through centuries of accretion of different people having their hands 
in the pot with this, or just a desperate sense of we need to preserve this at all costs before it's forgotten. There is just a, a weird, bizarre energy to, uh, to this story. One other thing before I begin, and I didn't mean to give it this long of an introduction on it, but um, there is a translation, a full translation of it available by R.A.S. McAllister, in the uh, published by the Irish Text Society uh, between 1938 and 1956. Now, when I was living in California and discovered that you could, that there was a full translation of this, I don't even know how many of those volumes I got. It may have only been one or two that I was able to get through interlibrary loan, probably from UCLA or, or a college like that uh, in the area. And um, I didn't get very far in it, but I still had a great, uh, a great fantasy about uh, dropping $300 or whatever it is, because you can still buy the nice hardcovers from the Irish Tech Society online. Um, and the funny thing about the inter internet is, is that 20 years later, uh, all you need to do is go to the Internet Archive and you can download PDFs of all five volumes for free. And I will have links uh, to those uh, in the post description here. Um, it's just uh, pretty amazing that you can just go ahead and do that. Um, the only other time that I've ever seen books from the Irish Tech Society in person uh, is at the University of Pittsburgh Library. I was running around uh, the library looking uh, for something. I can't remember what it was, but it had to have been something uh, nerdy and specialized. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been, um, wouldn't have uh, made the decision to go and uh, find the university library itself. And as I was running around, suddenly I saw basically a whole shelf of green hardcover spines. And there was, uh, I don't even know how many, dozens and dozens of uh, volumes from the Irish Tech Society with the facing Irish original on the left and the English translation on the right. It was a, uh, a beautiful thing. I think I was rushing around in part because my wife was waiting downstairs in the car and didn't want to park the car. But I had to pause and sort of pay my respects to this shelf full of green books. But in any case, this is James McKillop's uh, summary of the Lavar Gabala Eren, Gawala Eren. And this is taken from his book, The Dictionary of Celtic Mythology. Uh, the Irish title for the 12th century text, usually known in English as the Book of Invasions or Book of Conquests, literally the Book of the Taking of Ireland, Arén. A collection of pseudo-historical texts by various authors of different periods and arranged in a pattern of invasions, the Lavor Gavala purports to synchronize myths, legends, and genealogies from early Ireland with the framework of biblical exegesis. In the words of Alwyn and Brinley Rees, it is a laborious attempt to combine parts of the native teaching with Hebrew mythology embellished with medieval legend. 
One modern commentator calls the Labor Gawala a masterpiece of muddled medieval miscellany. Compilers of the Labor Gawala do not demonstrate a profound knowledge of the Bible itself, but rely instead on biblical commentators and historians, especially uh, 3rd century Eusebius, 6th century Erosius, and 7th century Isidore of Seville. Informed by Latin learning, the surviving Irish text may have been based on a Latin original, an assertion which is, though now much disputed. Portions of the Irish text were contributed by a number of identifiable poets from the 9th and 10th centuries, and the final compilation came after the 11th century. Accepting big biblical cosmology, the Lavora Gabala, plays a role in the Irish mythological cycle comparable to that of Hesiod's Works and Days, 6th century BCE, in Greek mythology. Now you can see the, uh, uh, any old text that deserves that much of a prologue in a work of reference, uh, you can see how complicated this is. The Irish original, the Christians coming in, the Christians who don't really have a very good uh, handle on the Bible themselves, but are uh, relying on 3rd, 6th, and 7th century commentators uh, from the continent, um, and who are using uh, uh, the, uh, the stories from the Hebrew Bible and embellishing them in their own Irish ways, in their own medieval ways, in their own Christianized ways. And they're using it to tell the story of the history of Ireland, which they believe to be a history of invasions. Um, as anyone familiar with uh, the history of archaeology will know, invasions were usually the excuse given for why cultures changed. There had to have been an invasion. Um, and I guess one of the reasons why uh, uh, this story uh, was taken to be somewhat close to fact for so long is because it gelled with that idea when in fact more and more the more and more we learn it's not uh, a sense of invasion so much as uh, continuity with new arrivals of just people uh, getting married um, I was just reading an article today about uh, uh, Neanderthals and uh, anatomically modern humans and, and what what happened when the Neanderthals died out. And of course one of the old theories that didn't really have any evidence behind it was that there was a huge genocidal war that took place between humans and Neanderthals and uh, modern humans as we're called now won out. Whereas DNA evidence uh, I believe starting from 2012 and going forward has shown that uh, even if this isn't the only answer, part of the answer is uh, just inbreeding. Uh, modern humans uh, had families with Neanderthals and eventually the Neanderthal line died out. But in any case, this is the story itself after that prologue. The text of the Lavor Gawala begins with the story of human history with the biblical flood which commentators date at 2900 BC, or in the supposed year of the world, 1104 Anamundi. 
Dates for different invasions vary widely in different texts, as medieval authorities never agreed on the date of creation. The Venerable Bede from the 7th century argued for 3952 BCE, and the Septuagint commentators, 3rd century BC, determined 5200 BC, while later authorities opted for 4004 BC. The Scots, the Scoti, i.e. the Goidals, the Irish, are assumed to have originated in Scythia. Now we begin the story. Uh, the Irish are assumed to have originated in Scythia, but to have taken their name from Scota or Scotia, the daughter of a pharaoh. While in Egypt, the Scoti knew Moses and are invited to join the Exodus, a probable source of the long-standing canard that the Irish are a lost tribe of Israel. Phineas Farsad is described as being present at the separation of languages at Babel and leaving instructions for his grandson, Goidel Glass, to forge the Irish languages out of the 72 tongues then in existence. Modern readers have taken the greatest interest in, in the iteration of the six mythological invasions, or seven, counting the Fomorians, of Ireland, which incorporate tantalizing elements of bona fide ethnic history, greatly transformed. Additionally, the Book of Invasions borrows from literary texts and at times explains the narratives in them. Sorting out the distinctions between invention and fact remains an ongoing task for scholars of early Ireland. The ordering of the invasions and the character of the invaders is fixed. 1. Césaire, granddaughter of Noah, who was sent to Ireland to escape the flood, accompanied her father, Beeth, along with fifty women and three men, who hoped vainly to populate the, I populate the island. 2. Partholone and the Partholonians, descendants of the biblical Magog, arrived 312 years after the death of Césaire and settled the eastern Irish plains before being wiped out in a plague. 3. Nemed and the Nemedians came from the Caspian Sea 30 years after the death of Partholone. After clearing 12 plains and forming four lakes, Nemed fought four battles with the Fomorians, winning three and losing the fourth, after which their remnants went into exile, some to return with later invasions. Number 3a, the Fomorians, not a part of the invasion sequence, but euhemerized deities, that is, uh, old gods who are, uh, in the case of Christians, uh, uh, are put into stories not as gods, but as sort of heroes or superhumans. Uh, euhemerized deities who come to be portrayed as a dark and violent but magical race of pirates whose home is Tory Island off the Donegal coast. They battle the Partholonians and the Nemedians before being defeated by the Tuatha de Danann. Number four, the Firbolg are short, dark people who came to Ireland fleeing oppression, as always, uh, and then the Irish also flee oppression. Sometimes they are thought to be a second wave of Nemedians or survivors of their invasion. Defeated by the invading Tuatha de Danann, they settle on Aran Island and Rathlin Island. Number five, now we get to 
the Tuatha de Danann, gods of the pre-Christian Irish pantheon, who are reduced to human stature, and who arrived 37 years after the Firbolg, whom they subjugated. Their defeat of the Fomorians ushered in the luminous era in which many early Irish mythological narratives appear to be taking place. An important word there, appear to be taking place. It's hard to pinpoint all of this on a graph or even an Excel document. Uh, and finally, number six, the Mille Espagne. The, Mil the Milesians and the Milesians are the mortal ancestors of the modern Gaels, although his name means, name means soldier of Spain, Mil Espagne. Mil is a Scythian who marries Scota, literally Irish woman. His descendants leave Spain for Kerry, 297 years after the arrival of the Tuatha de Danann, defeat their predecessors, and push on to found Tara, the hill at Tara and the great uh, center there at Tara, uh, the actual archaeological site that is there. Uh, the Milesians still reign when the time frame of Irish heroic literature ceases. Uh, and the idea of Ireland being populated from people from Spain uh, is now, uh, at least in part through uh, linguistics and other evidence, uh, seems at least partly a possibility, partly true. Um, the first two invasions are the least grounded and most contrived of the seven. Many of the names in Césaire's retinue appear to have been invented to provide a gloss for place names. Elements in her invasion are both erotic and comic. The three men of the company are, changed, are charged with dividing fifty women among them and to populate the island. Two of the men die in Césaire's and Césaire's, quote, husband, Fintan Mac Bochra, feeling inadequate to the task, flees in the form of a salmon. The name Partholone is probably also an invention, as the letter P is unknown in earlier Irish. It appears to be an adaptation of Bartholomaeus, which Isidore of Seville and St. Jerome glossed as the son of him who stays waters. Good colonists, the Partholonians, cleared the four plains, settling Magna Elta, Moyalti, roughly coextensive with the modern city of Dublin, from Hoth on to the East Halacht and the Southwest. The first battle on Irish soil pitted the Partholonians against the devilish Fomorians from the north. After introducing agriculture, the Partholonian colony swelled to 9,000, before all but one of them died in a plague. Only Tuan Macarel, sometimes Macstern, survived to the time of Columcille to tell of the invasions of Ireland, Columcille being the historic monk of, I believe, the 8th or 9th century, is that right? And Tuan Macarel is uh, a character that I love and that I've written about a few times and probably will continue to do so. And even here you begin to see... Uh, the Irish love not only of place names, which I don't know if any of that has to do with uh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, whether they were doing that before or after they encountered the stories in the Hebrew Bible that do the same thing, where narratives are stopped to a halt to not just uh, do genealogies, but also to explain place names. And you see the Celtic love of 
human beings turning into animals and from animals back into human beings. Uh, Nemed and the Nemedians, arriving 30 years after the Parthelonians, appear initially to be the shadows of their predecessors, clearing the lands and forming lakes. As a people, their greed for gold led them to disaster before they arrived in Ireland, when all but one of their 34 ships were lost in a vain pursuit of a tower of gold seen on the sea. This attack on a tower prefigures their brave but futile assault against the tower of the Fomorians on Tory Island off Donegal. Before this, the Nemedians had bested the hated Fomorians three times, but were nonetheless reduced to vassalage, paying a humiliating tribute. After being decimated by the Fomorians, remnants of the Nemedians scattered across the world, returning generations later as the mythical Firbolg and the Dwatha de Danann, as well as the historical British. Some commentators link the Nemedians with the historical Arain. Although not a wave of invaders themselves, the Fomorians appear often in the Book of Invasions, usually as rapacious raiders upon other settlers. When the Partholonians first encounter them under Sichol, they are hideous, misshapen, uh, they are hideous, misshapen monsters with but one eye, one arm, one leg, but elsewhere they are more anthropomorphic. Their portrait in another important early Irish text, the Second Battle of Mag Tired, has them intermarrying with the Tuatha Dé Danann, the race of gods. Modern commentators believe they are euhemerized, they are also, that they are also euhemerized pagan deities, possibly marine counterparts of the Tuatha Dé Danann whose characterization was heavily influenced by early sea marauders, first from the Scottish Isles and then, more substantially, from the Norse. Often they appear to be demonic but magical pirates, given to gratuitous cruelty. For unexplained reasons, they do not prey upon the agricultural Firbolg, causing some earlier commentators to think that the two groups were identical, an assertion that is now rejected. There, the climactic moment comes in the um, Second Battle of Magtured, whose action is summarized in the Book of Invasions, so that the five volumes of the Book of Invasions could even be much longer, uh, because it is summarizing other longer stories themselves. After Brace, who is a Fomorian, part of the Tuatha de Danann, makes an unsuitable successor to Nawadu Ergeltam, king of the Tuatha de Danann, a great battle ensues between the two field, two people. Lug Lamphota, the Tuatha de Danann champion, puts his sling stone through the magical eye of Baelor, thus turning his power against Baelor's fellow warriors, disabling many of them. The Fomorians are subsequently routed and do not make trouble in Ireland again. Perceptions of the Firbolg have changed as modern readers abandoned the old or more fanciful interpretations of their name, which used to mean men of bags, bolg, which mean, meaning bag or sack, in favor of the view that their invasion is, a myth, is mytholo, mythologized from the possible movements of such peoples as the Arain, the Domnean, and the Lagin, who may have come from the continent in Great Britain. 
the Firbolg are supposed to have introduced iron-tipped weapons and also to have established an area of peace and prosperity, especially under their king, Eochid Mac whose reign induced harvests every year and established the rule of law. After 37 years, the Tuatha de Danann, a race of gods, invaded the defeated Firbolg at the first battle of Magtired, near Loch Arrow in County Sligo. Thus subdued, the Firbolg fled to distant corners of the Gaelic world, such as the Scottish coast, Rathlin Island, and the Aran Islands. In folkloric memory, they are grotesque, dark helots, and cave fairies, a perception partially coordinate with the misinterpretation of their name as men of bags. The divine origins of the Tuatha de Danann are implicit in the usual story of their arrival in Ireland, descending from a dark cloud on a mountain in the west, instead of by ship, as other invaders had. Their very name, people of the goddess Danu or Anna, may have been invented in the Book of Invasions, but the phrase Tuatha De was earlier used to describe the old gods or to denote the Israelites in translations of the Bible. The complete origin of the name and the precise implications of it are still disputed. Unquestionably, many members of the Tuatha de Danann predate the composition of the Book of Invasions, having been the gods of pre-Christian cults. But from the Book of Invasions onward, they are portrayed as humans, if extraordinary ones. They excel all peoples of the earth in their proficiency in every art. After their defeat of the Firbolg at the First Battle of Magtired, their only enemies are the Fomorians, also euhemerized deities. After the unhappy succession of the part Fomorian Bres to the throne of Nuadu Eregaltam, the Tuathu de Danann decisively defeat the Fomorians at the epic Second Battle of Magtired. The era that follows is, is the time when most of the action of the mythological cycle of Irish myth takes place. Leading figures from this cycle include the Dagda, the good god, a king who specializes in druidical magic, Angus Og, the god of poetry, Lug Lamfota, not only an important champion but a master of arts and crafts, Dion Checht, the principal healing god, Brigid, the fire goddess Boand, the goddess of the Boyne River, who is also wife to the Dagda, Ogma, a god of eloquence, who is also a strong man and warrior, and the triad of warrior goddesses, Bave, Macha, and Morrigan. This happy reign comes to an end, though, with the invasion of the immortal Milesians, who defeat the Tuatha de Danann in two battles, Tile two and and Drum Ligen. Although Levor Gabala does not describe the Tuatha de Danann in defeat, popular sources from the 12th century on portray them as living in the world of the Milesians and their progeny, but unseen by them through the power of Feth Fiada. Mortals live above the earth, while the immortal Tuatha de Danann live first in cairns and barrows, and later beneath the earth. And you can see just from this that uh, 
our ideas about the fairy people and the fairy mounds, which have, uh, since the 10th century, of course, have gone well beyond all of this scholarship and all of this hectic piling on of names and history uh, to, to even just become uh, uh, a cartoon character and a box of cereal. Um, and it's wonderful to see it uh, beginning here and having uh, this sort of mournful start as being uh, old gods reduced to this strange form underground. Uh, the route to the realm of the immortal Tuatha Dé Danann is the seed. Any humans entering the world of the Tuatha Dé Danann encounter enchanted idols such as Magmel, the Pleasant Plain, Emain Alblach, the Fortress of Apples, and, best known of all, Tirnanog, the Land of Youth. In time, the underground Tuatha Dé Danann become identical with the fairies, and you see these huge learned stories uh, becoming popular stories, becoming uh, folklore in a really wonderful and uh, beautiful way. And here, as the uh, summary begins to conclude, narratives of the Milesians are discontinuous. Those dealing with their origins in Scythia and the biblical lands are highly contrived and fanciful, and those of their invasion, echoing the coming of the Q-Celtic goidals, the Milesians invent the Irish language. Their early leader, Phineas Farsaid, was present at Babel, gleaning the best from all existing tongues, and his grandson, Goidel, put Phineas's knowledge into practice. Moses himself assured the Milesians that they would live in a land free of snakes. Memory of the Druid Kaiser's prophecy that they would live in Ireland, they would live in Ireland haunted by the Milesians. Uh, yes, that's right. Memory of the Druid Kaiser's prophecy that they would live in Ireland haunted the Milesians, and the Mil Espain led his people from Egypt towards their promised land, but was killed in Spain while aiding his kinsmen there. He gave his name to his people through his many sons, some of them from his second wife, Scota, the daughter of the Pharaoh. One son, Eth, after climbing Brogan's tower in Brigantia, in uh, Braganza, Portugal, sees Ireland one cold night and resolves to go there. When he does, and is killed, the eight sons of Mil vow revenge. They land at Inberskane and win a swift victory over the Tuatha Dé Danann and at Sliab Mis before meeting three goddesses, Banba, Eriu, and Fodla, each of whom asked that Ireland be named for her. Three kings of the Tuatha Dé at Tara, Macquil, and Macchecht, and Macgrain, possibly husbands of the goddesses, promise to turn over the country to the invaders if only the latter will keep nine waves from shore for three days. It is a trick, and the two sons of Meal are drowned, the other sailing sunwise into the Boyne estuary, where they land at Inber Kolthpa, named for the Kolthpa. A surviving son. The Milesians then crush the Tuatha Dé Danann in two battles at Tailtu in County Meath and Druam Ligen and spread their power over all of Ireland. Because Mil Espain's widow, Scota, accompanies the invaders, 
they come to be known as the Scoti, or Scati, which is indeed the Latin name for the Gaelic-speaking Irishmen, as well as those Gaels who settled in what is now Scotland, and gives Scotland its name. Meal's son, Amarajan, becomes a leading poet, and two others, Eramon and Eber, divide Ireland between them. In the first century of their rule, a rebellion of the plebeian races sets up a disastrous interregnum of a usurper. After his death, the usurper's son, Moran, returns the kingship to the rightful heirs. Although the Milesians are not mentioned prominently in the Ulster or Connacht directorates, most Irish aristocratic families claim descent from Mil, Spain, or España. Although the oldest surviving text of the Book of Invasions is in the 12th century, is in the 12th century Book of Leinster, we have abundant evidence that the full text grew over many centuries and was added to by many hands. Summaries of the Book of Invasion narratives appear in the Historia Britonium, formerly attributed to Nennius, and the Scottish chronicler John Forden, who died circa 1384, uh, drew on the Book of Invasions in his five-volume Chronicle of the Scottish People, often interpolating passages of shameless chauvinism. Some of the most important Irish historians before modern times struggled to make the Book of Invasions history fit with information gathered elsewhere. Although, and this gives a list of, the, of those historians, although themes and characters from the Book of Invasions appear often in literature written by non-Gaelic authors, such as James Joyce employing many in Finnegan's Wake in 1939, the pedestrian prose and digressive narratives have discouraged English or other adaptations. And that warning, I guess, would have been just as well put in the very beginning. You can imagine what five volumes of that would be like. Um, I read it, even though it's probably tiresome to listen to. It was sort of tiresome to read. But it, uh, even in summary there, you get the sense of what, uh, I don't want to say real literature, you get the sense of what other kinds of literature uh, mean to a people, what other kinds of literature uh, do when the point of them is not just uh, entertainment, it's, just, it's not just a new novel by a great writer, it is a huge collection of important stories that have been added to for centuries and centuries. And even though it's been made uh, uh, into a huge mound that is perhaps unreadable to us today, uh, the impulse that went into making this huge collection is so important to pay attention to. Um, and just so important to experience, even if it is, let's see what it is at, at now, even if it is at the tail end of uh, 40 minutes of a podcast. Um, and especially uh, when the other stories that I will share here are usually fairly short and fairly to the point, and they have their own distinctive charm. But 
uh, I think this is a good way to get back into the Celtic myths. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.